first and foremost. How were your coffees last week? Some of them were great. Some of them, you know, don't know. And how did you like Nancy Fitzgerald the week before that? Good. Well, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Revelation, I thought we maybe need to do a quick recap just to get our brains in the learning mode again. And if you remember, the sixth trumpet was sounded in chapter 9, releasing locust-like demons on the earth, as well as two or four fallen angels who were... Um, chained at the Euphrates River, remember? And they led a large, massive army that killed one-third of mankind. And then there's an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And that begins in chapter 10. Remember where John was told to eat a little scroll that the angel held in his hand? Chapter 11 continues this pause or this interlude, and it zeroes in on Israel. And on Jerusalem in particular, where we learned that there, were, there will be a functioning temple during the tribulation period, and that the Antichrist will take over this temple and set himself up to be worshipped halfway into this seven-year covenant that he had made with Israel. We also learned that the Lord will, would send two witnesses to proclaim his truth during this time. And he's going to protect them until their ministry is complete. Only then will the Antichrist be able to kill them. Now, these two witnesses can't be touched by their enemies until they've completed the mission that God has assigned them. And ladies, the same is true for us. We won't leave this earth until God's purposes for us have been completed as well. And after that, he will call us home, just like he did with these two witnesses. Uh, Remember, after they killed these two witnesses and they allowed their bodies to lay in the streets for three and a half days, then God breathed his breath in them and raised them to life again. And the people there in Jerusalem and really the whole world, as they watched via internet or TV or however they're going to watch it, they watched as these two witnesses were raptured back into heaven. And we learned that just as God gave these two witnesses their job assignment to share the truth and proclaim the gospel during this tribulation period, we too have been given an assignment to share the gospel in our generation. And we had the privilege of hearing Mary Kay Cranbeer share her testimony. Did you enjoy hearing her testimony? And what the Lord was doing in her life. And then... Last week, we heard Nancy Fitzgerald share what the Lord has been doing in her life. So I have a question for you. Are you sharing what the Lord has done and is doing in your life with those that he sends across your path as well? I hope you are, because that's what he's called us to do while we're here. Now, we didn't quite get finished with chapter 11. So if you have your Bible... Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to try to pick up with verse 14, and then finish chapter 11 and finish chapter 12 today. So I hope you have your track shoes on, because we're going to try to cover a lot of ground today. But first, before we get started, why don't we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, shall we? 
Father, thank you so much for loving us. And as we think of Valentine's Day today and those that we love and how much we love them, I pray that you will help us each to remember that the only reason we can even love others is because you first loved us. Help us to remember that, Lord, and be forever and eternally grateful for your love and all that you've done through us, for us through Jesus Christ. I pray now that as we open this portion of your word, Lord, and we get a, a wide lens view of what's transpired from the beginning of time in eternity past and what will happen at the very end of time on earth. As we get this wide, vast view, Lord, I just pray that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, not just the information that we're going to be learning, but to really get a glimpse of your love and the links that you went to to redeem us back from Satan. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll be our teacher and drive these truths deep in our hearts. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Okay, you've all got chapter 11. We're going to finish up by starting... um, Well, let's start, pick up with verse 14 and catch the end of that sentence on and finish out uh, chapter 11. So the second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who revere your name, both small and great. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and and a great hailstorm. Let's stop there before we go into chapter 12. And we'll finish up 11. Um, The earthquake in Jerusalem after these two witnesses have been raptured back up to heaven, will mark the end of the second woe, or the sixth trumpet. The third woe woe will be the seventh trumpet and those seven bowl judgments that that brings. And in verse 15, it tells us that when the seventh trumpet sounds, there's going to be a loud declaration that God and his son, Jesus, will be taken over. The seventh trumpet sets into motion the final events leading up to the return of Jesus, the establishment of his millennial kingdom, and the culmination of God's redemptive plan. But I want you to notice that even though the seventh trumpet sounds here in chapter 15, the bold judgments that are associated with it aren't described until chapter 15. So that means that chronologically, chapter 15 follows chapter 11. Okay, 
Keep in mind that chapters 12 through 14 don't follow chapter 11 chronologically. Instead, they are going to take us back and fill in some background that we need to understand and know, which which helps it put into perspective and context and shed some light on why these things are happening. And it's going to fill us in with some more details of the final three and a half years of the tribulation. Now we're told that when the seventh angel sounded his trumpet announcing that God and Jesus will be taking over, another worship service breaks out in heaven. Now remember when the seventh seal was open, do you remember what happened? There was total silence in heaven. Remember that? Because they were looking forward at what what was to come. But now, here at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, there is rejoicing in heaven because they're anticipating the soon return and reign of Jesus on the earth and the termination of the rule of Satan. And verse 15 says that loud voices in heaven cry out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, does this phrase sound familiar to any of you? Yeah, this is where George Handel got the words in his famous Hallelujah Chorus. This verse points forward to Jesus' establishment of his millennial kingdom on earth that he will rule uh, on that throne for a thousand years. And following his second coming, Jesus is going to set up this kingdom and will assume the throne of David, just like God has promised. Now remember, several weeks ago we talked about how Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth, okay? And then when Satan deceived them, they lost that dominion over earth in the fall of the Garden of Eden, and Satan assumed that dominion. And Satan has been the ruler of this world ever since then. But here in verse 15, it summarizes what will be described in more detail in the chapters to come. And that's this great transfer of power and the authority and control over the earth from Satan and wicked humanity under his spiritual bondage, which is called the kingdom of the world, back to Jesus Christ and the saints under the sovereign headship of God the Father, which is called the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what they're looking forward to, this transfer of power back to Jesus and the Father. Now, why is there such a celebration in heaven when Jesus isn't reigning completely on earth at this point in time? Did you ever ask yourself that? Well, it's because the victory is sure. And an example I could maybe give it to you, it's like the celebration at the headquarters of a political campaign on election night when their candidate wins, right? They are celebrating and everything. There's joy, even though it's going to be a little while before that full transfer of power takes place and their candidate is actually installed into office. Not a great analogy considering the political climate we have, but you get the idea. It's a, they've won the victory, but the transfer of power hasn't actually taken place yet. Jesus doesn't claim his royal rights until he returns at the second coming. But the actual victory has already been won. And heaven is rejoicing as if that day that Jesus will establish his kingdom has already arrived. And the long rebellion of Satan against God will finally, finally be put to an end. 
So notice the stark contrast between heaven and earth here. While there's praise and worship of God in heaven, what's going on in earth? There's rebellion and defiance of God on earth. See, verse 18 summarizes what happens in the rest of the book of Revelation. The nations are angry at the thought of Jesus returning to reign. Now, why would they be angry? Because they want to have their own way and live life like they want to. The rebellion of man is going to continue right up to the very end. And Satan sure isn't going to relinquish his kingdom without a fight. Even after the millennium, when he is released again, he's going to stir the anger of the nations and unite them in one final fight against Jesus in a conflict called the Battle of Armageddon. And we're going to study that in the chapters to come. But just remember, in the end, Jesus will take the rule of earth back from Satan. And he's going to bring eternal judgment to those who have rejected him, but rewards to those who have trusted him and revere his name. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, John was told to measure the the millennial temple of God on earth. Remember that? We talked about him measuring that temple. At the end of this chapter, we see in verse 19 that John gets a glimpse of the temple in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's throne, his presence with his people, the protection of them, his mercy and his forgiveness. It was also a symbol of his holiness and the basis for his just wrath. So all the covenants and promises of God to his people are in that ark. That's what it symbolized. And God's promises cannot be broken. They are forever settled in heaven. So the fact that the ark is mentioned here indicates that God is soon going to fulfill his covenant promises to Israel. See, a remnant of Israel will soon come to faith in Jesus and will come into full possession of the ancient land promised to them when that millennial reign happens. But those who refuse to put their trust in him are going to face upcoming judgment. Now, that brings us to chapter 12. Now, as I said, chapter 12 through 14 don't follow chapter 11 chronologically. Instead, they're going to take us back and fill in some background information which helps to explain and put things in context as to why this epic conflict is happening between God and Satan. Chapter 12 is all about Satan, okay? And the reason for his fierce hatred of God and of Israel. Now, this will help you a lot, so listen carefully, okay? There are three parts to chapter 12, if you can keep these in your mind. In verses 1 through 6, John is giving a panoramic view of this eternal conflict between God and Satan that began in eternity past, that will climax in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and in the end will, uh, will end with that transfer of power and the kingdom of the world back to the Father and to Jesus. And that's what we just saw being celebrated in chapter 11, okay? So John's given this panoramic view in verses 1 through 6. In verses 7 through 12, John zeroes in on these last three and a half years of the tribulation and what's going on in heaven 
at that time that causes this great conflict on earth. And then in verses 13 through 17, John zeroes in on earth, describing what will happen on earth during those final three and a half years as a result of this war that happens in heaven. Now, I know chapters 12, really, and 13 are filled with lots of symbols and signs. But I hope you won't let that get you confused and overwhelmed or frustrated. Now, do you remember at the very beginning of the year we talked about, do you remember what a sign is? Uh, A sign is a symbol that's used to point to a reality. When you're on the interstate and you see a sign for gas and you're running low, do you pull up to that sign to get gas? No. A sign is simply a symbol that points to a reality of something else. So it's going to point you to where the gas is, right? So at the beginning of the year, we learned that often the text itself is going to tell us what that sign or that symbol is referring to. At other times, references to other scriptures are going to help us show, help show us what is being symbolized. So as we walk through this chapter together, I think you're going to realize that these symbols aren't as overwhelming or confusing as they might initially seem to be. So let's read through chapter 12 and we'll dive in. A great wondrous sign appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach." 
Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, keep in mind that verses 1 through 6, what John is seeing here is a panoramic view of that eternal conflict between God and Satan. So this vision begins with a rapid view of the first coming of Christ. The first sign that's mentioned in verses 1 and 2 is a pregnant woman who's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she's about to give birth. We're told in verse 1 that this woman is a sign. So who is this woman a symbol of? A lot of people think, well, it must be Mary, right? Uh, Well, this same imagery is used in a dream that Joseph had, which is described back in Genesis 37. And notice that the three symbols in Joseph's dream in Genesis, the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars, are all associated with this woman here in Revelation 12. In Joseph's dream, the sun represented his father Jacob. And the moon represented Jacob's wife, and the 12 stars represented their 12 children. This family, who were descendants of Abraham, was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Remember, you always hear about the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the 12 sons of Jacob. That tells us that this woman is a symbol of the nation of Israel. Because it's through the nation of Israel that Jesus, the Messiah, came. The nation of Israel gave birth, so to speak, to Jesus, the Messiah. The second sign John sees is an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. Now, we don't have to look at other scriptures or guess who this dragon is a symbol of because we're told in verse 9 that this great dragon is Satan. He's described here in verse 3 as enormous because of his great power. Red depicts murder and bloodshed because he has no regard at all for human life. And he's described as a dragon because of his monstrous destructive nature. He's depicted as a seven-headed monster that rules the world. Now remember, Satan has been allowed to rule the world since the fall of Adam and Eve, and he's going to continue to do so until Jesus returns. This imagery of seven heads with seven crowns symbolizing power and authority, which is also consistent with the vision that Daniel had, by the way, it represents seven continuous world empires running their course under Satan's dominion. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome And then that last one will be the future world empire during the tribulation. I don't know how many of you were here when we studied the book of Daniel a few years ago, but we learned about these world empires. Do you remember studying the the statue um, about Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he had and about these world empires? Do you remember studying that? 
Um, you can go back and read about that in Daniel chapter 2 and 7. Because as I've mentioned before, I think, Daniel contains a lot of references to the things in the book of Revelation. They're kind of companion books. And this is going to be covered in more detail next week and in your lesson this week as you study. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on it today. But it's going to be covered in the weeks coming up. But Satan has always used ungodly nations in his attempt to destroy God's people. And his final world kingdom during the tribulation period is going to be a ten-nation confederacy that the Antichrist will have power over. And that is what is represented here by these ten horns. Now keep in mind, the Antichrist is simply a pawn in the hands of Satan to carry out his evil program of world domination during this time. So we have the second sign is Satan described as an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten ten horns, and seven crowns. Now, verse 4 tells us that this dragon's tail swept one-third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. Now remember, this is a panoramic view of history, okay? So this is a reference to when Satan, who was originally called Lucifer and was God's chief angel, actually, he decided to wage a rebellion against God in eternity past. You can read more about that in detail in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, if you'd like. But that's what John is seeing here, the original fall of Satan who became so jealous of God and wanted so badly to be worshipped just like God that he evidently convinced one-third of the angels in heaven to join him in an attempt to overthrow the God who had created them. And as a result, they were all cast down to earth. They lost their high and privileged positions that they held in heaven. And this made Satan furious. And since he couldn't be worshipped in heaven, he set his sights on being worshipped on earth. And so Genesis 3 tells us that he went and deceived Adam and Eve and talked them and and, um, deceived them into disobeying God and instead listening and following him. And in doing so, Satan seized the authority and control over this earth that God had entrusted to Adam and Eve. And all mankind became part of this, his dark kingdom as a result. But listen to what God told Satan in Genesis 3.15. He said, because you have done this, I am going to put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And if you notice when you read that, that's a capital S, seed, Okay says, he shall crush your head, even though you may strike his heel. In other words, God was going to be sending someone, a seed, who would defeat Satan and take back what Adam and Eve had lost. He knew that seed was coming. And so from that moment on, Satan began to try to prevent that seed that would crush his head from being born. And the entire Bible tells us the story of this epic war between God and Satan, of Satan trying to prevent him from coming to crush his head, trying to prevent him from being born. Then when he is born, trying to keep him from redeeming the world, 
And we'll see. Um, if you remember, Satan stirred up Cain to kill Abel. Because if Abel was dead and Cain was our murderer, then how could that seed of woman come to crush Satan's head? But what did God do? He gave Eve another son, Seth, to carry on. Satan tried to corrupt God's promise to Abraham to make him a great nation through whom the Messiah would come by inspiring Sarah and Abraham to produce a son in their own effort instead of waiting on the promised son. But God gave them Isaac, the son of promise, even in their old age. Satan tried to have Pharaoh destroy the Jewish people, the people through whom the Messiah was to come. Remember at the Red Sea? What did God do? They were, they were going to be, dist- I mean, completely wiped off the planet. At that point, what did God do? He opened the sea, parted the sea, and they crossed on dry ground. So having failed to wipe out the people of God and the messianic line that the seed Jesus would come through, then Satan tried to murder Jesus himself. So John fast forwards thousands of years from Satan's fall from heaven to the time of Jesus' birth in the second half of verse 4 here. When Satan is trying, standing ready to devour this child when it's born. That's what's being depicted here. When Jesus was born, remember Satan inspired Herod to kill all the baby boys who were ages 2 and under? He didn't care about all those babies that were butchered. He was trying to kill one baby, Jesus, that seed. But what did God do? He warned Mary and Joseph in a dream, remember, to flee to Egypt, to get away from him. So you see, this war between God and Satan started way back before Genesis. It still continues today, and it's going to continue until Jesus returns. Satan hates the nation of Israel, and he hated the line of David. He hated the idea that there would be someone who would come and crush his head. And he did everything in his power to stop the Messiah from being born. But despite of all the dragon's efforts to devour the child, look what it says in verse 5. It says, the woman, who's the woman, everybody? Israel. Gave birth to a son who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now there's only one person who has been caught up and will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Who is that? Jesus. So this is a reference to Jesus' ascension back into heaven after his death and resurrection and also his millennial reign on the earth when he returns at his second coming. So when Satan couldn't devour Jesus at birth... He thought he finally had him, thought he had victory when Jesus was nailed to the cross. But what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection was Satan's defeat. Now, this whole story of Jesus' earthly life, his birth, his life, his death and resurrection and his ascension is condensed into one little verse. Verse 5 in here, okay? Because the focus is, is on Satan right now. That's what um, John is zeroing in on here to tell us why this um, war is happening. And then between verses 5 and 6 are thousands of years. 
John fast forwards again thousands of years from Jesus' ascension in verse 5 to the final three and a half years of earth's history in verse 6, which is the midpoint of the tribulation. Unable to prevent Jesus' birth or to destroy him after he was born, Satan now focuses his attack on the woman. Again, who's the woman, ladies? Israel. So he's focusing his, his attack on Israel in an attempt to prevent Christ's second coming. But it says Israel fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where he will take care of her for 1260 days. Now that number should look familiar to you. How long is 1260 days? You have um, three and a half years, and this is that last three and a half years again of the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation. This correlates with what Jesus taught in Matthew 24. Remember I said if you keep looking at Matthew 24, that correlates also to Revelation. But Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the tribulation temple would be defiled by the Antichrist halfway through the tribulation period. And he was going to set up um, what he called the desolation, remember? And he, he warned those who were alive in Judea at this time to flee to the mountains when they saw this happening. So now in verses 1 through 6, God has, or John has given us a panoramic view of this war between God and Satan. Now beginning in verse 7, John's going to zero in on these final three and a half years of earth's history by first looking at it from a heavenly point of view. What's happening in heaven during these final three and a half years? Verse 7 says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now, it's hard to imagine there's going to be war in heaven, isn't it? Or at least it is to me. But did any of you think when you read this, you're thinking, now, wait a minute. What's Satan doing back in heaven? I mean, didn't we just see him get kicked out with a third of the angels? So how did he get back up there? Anybody think of that? Okay. Many people have the misconception that Satan was kicked out of heaven and now is in charge of hell. How many people thought that? Or you, most people think that Satan is now in charge of hell, right? But Satan's not in hell. And in fact, he's never been in hell. He won't be sentenced to the lake of fire until after the millennium. And when he does enter hell, he's not sure not going to be in charge. He's going to be an inmate there. But for reasons we don't understand, it appears that even after Satan and a third of the angels rebelled against God in eternity past and were cast out of heaven, they still have limited access to heaven right now. And we see that from the book of Job. Remember when he's up there talking to God about Job? Today, Satan currently divides his time between roaming earth seeking someone to devour and being in heaven. And do you know what Satan's doing right now in heaven? He's constantly accusing you and me and all Christians before God the Father. Satan's not only working on earth to turn God's children against God, he's also up in heaven trying to turn God against his children. But verse 7 tells us that at some point, around the beginning of the final three and a half years of the tribulation... 
Satan and his demons are going to try one more final rebellion against God. And once again, they're going to lose. And look at the results in verses 9 and 10. It said, the great dragon was thrown down. Underline that. The great dragon was thrown down. That serpent of old who's called the devil or Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. This is the ultimate throwdown, ladies. Satan and his demons will be thrown out of heaven once and for all. Yeah. <laughs> now here in verses nine, verse 9, we find five of the most common names for Satan in Scripture. And as we look at his names and titles, we learn something about his character. So let's take just a second and look at these. He's called the dragon. And we went over this before. That refer, refers to his fierce, cruel, monstrous nature. You know, Satan loves being portrayed as that little cartoon character with the horns and the tail and the little pitchfork who sits on your shoulder whispering in your ear. He loves that because nobody's afraid of that kind of person. But that's not who Satan is. He is the great dragon. He's called the serpent of old. And that reminds us of his deception of Adam and Eve through his crafty and subtle nature in the Garden of Eden. He's called... Let's see, where did I... He's called Satan, or the deceiver of the whole world. We need to be on guard against him because just as he deceived Adam and Eve, he also seeks to deceive us. He's a liar, And he's much too smart to appear as the monster that he really is. So instead, he often appears very, very appealing. I mean, if he appeared to us as he really is, we would run, wouldn't we? So he appears very appealing. And sometimes it says, the Bible says he can even appear as an angel of light. So he's a deceiver. He's called Satan, which means adversary. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But Satan hates you. And he has a destructive plan for your life. Ladies, we need to recognize that Satan is our enemy. Don't be deceived. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is our adversary, and he's out to devour and destroy us. And finally, he's called the devil, which means slanderer or accuser. Satan will accuse you and make you feel condemned. He'll accuse others and make you doubt their integrity. He'll accuse God and make you doubt him and his love for you. And he'll accuse you to God. In fact, that's what he's doing right now in heaven. He's accusing and slandering you and me before our Heavenly Father. Every time Satan sees me do something that's wrong, or every time my attitude, I have a bad attitude, he walks up to God and he says, Did you see what Teresa just did? Can you believe that? 
You're a holy God. How in the world can you put up and love her? But fortunately, Satan's not the only one in heaven. Hebrews 7.25 says, We have an advocate who lives to intercede for us. And 1 John 2.1 says that if we sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one who intercedes for us. Now the word advocate means a defense attorney. Now why aren't believers judged and condemned for sin? Because all of our sin, past, present, and future, have been paid for in full by the blood of Jesus. So when Satan steps up before God and accuses you or me, but Jesus steps in as our defense attorney and he says, Father, wait a minute. I already paid for that sin. It's paid in full. So ladies, if you are a child of God, Jesus has wiped your slate clean. Aren't you glad you got an advocate in heaven? Oh man, I need it, don't you? (laughs) Well, verse 10 says that there's going to be great rejoicing in heaven when the accuser is finally thrown down for good. Satan will no longer have access to heaven or to God's presence, and he will never, ever be able to accuse believers before God's throne again. No accusation of Satan against believers in Jesus can stand because our sins have been forgiven through the blood shed by the Lamb. That's how we overcome Satan, by putting our trust in Jesus who died on the cross. And this is how the tribulation saints will be able to overcome Satan too. Despite all the persecution that they're going to face, they're going to remain faithful witnesses to Jesus. They're not going to back down even when threatened with death because they would rather give up their lives than deny Jesus. And even though many of these tribulation saints will be killed before Jesus returns, they will be in heaven or they will overcome Satan because they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, just like we do. Now, verse 12 says that when Satan is thrown down once and for all, there's going to be great rejoicing in heaven. But boy, it's not going to be good news for anybody left on earth. Because when Satan is thrown down to earth, he's going to be even more enraged and determined to destroy every last Jewish person on earth. Now, Zechariah 12.10 says that Jesus won't return until the Jewish people are about to be wiped out at Armageddon, and that the Jewish leaders cry out for a deliverance from him, their Messiah. Okay? That's when he will return. So Satan might be thinking that if he can destroy the Jews, he can prevent the second coming of Christ and prevent this promise of reign of Jesus on Israel's throne. But he knows he only has a short time to accomplish his objectives before being thrown into the bottomless pit. Verses 13 through 17 shows us then what happens on earth as a result of Satan being thrown down once and for all. Immediately after being thrown down, Satan will try to erase Israel from the face of the earth. But God will provide a way for her to escape. Look at verse 14. It says, The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. 
Now, this doesn't mean that there's going to be this gigantic eagle that's going to swoop in and carry all the Jewish people out. Some people think that maybe this refers to um, a big airlift that will happen and carry people out on airplanes. And that's a possibility. But if we let Scripture be our guide, we learn that in Exodus 19.4, they use the same imagery there when God says he brought Israel out of Egypt on eagle's wings, which means that God helped them escape swiftly and supernaturally because they couldn't deliver themselves. This is most likely what this means here as well. The Israelites won't be able to deliver themselves. But God will intervene in some way to help them escape. Now this doesn't mean that all the Jews will escape and survive. Zechariah 13.8 says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. So many of the Jews are going to die. But a remnant of the Jews will survive Satan's onslaught. Now, notice in verse 14 that it says Israel will flee to the place prepared for her. God knows what Satan's going to try to do to Israel during the tribulation period. And he's already devised an escape route for them to, to keep them safe. He'll have this place of safety ready when they need it. And he's going to take care of her for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, now how long is that? You have time, which is one year, times, so you add two more years, and half a time. How many is that? There you have it again. How can you miss this tribulation period, the last three and a half years? And those Israelites who flee to the mountainous wilderness will be protected and cared for by God for the last three and a half years. Now, we aren't told the exact place that the Lord will hide and protect them. But the important thing is, isn't the place. It's the fact that God will protect and provide for them. Wherever this hiding place will be, these Jews are going to be cut off from the world. And so they're going to need some kind of help to survive. Now, the Lord may supernaturally provide food and water and clothing and protection and anything else that Israel needs during this time, just like he did in the days of Moses when they were wandering in the desert. Or he may work through other people to supply their needs and care for them. There is an indication that there will be Gentiles that will help protect Israel during this time. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the judgment of the Israel nations. And in this context, when he separates the sheep from the goats, those who are sheep may be those who help these fleeing Israelites during these last three and a half years. Remember Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me? I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, I was naked and you clothed me. See, these Gentiles will demonstrate the genuineness of their faith in Christ by their willingness to help the persecuted Jews, even at the risk of their own lives. That's a possibility. But regardless of how God protects them, 
He will protect and care for this remnant of Israel in her special place for the entire second half of the tribulation period. Now, verse 15 tells us that one last effort to exterminate this group of, of Israel, Israelites, Satan is, it says Satan is going to spew water like a river from his mouth to overtake the woman and destroy her. Now, we don't know if this is actually a literal water or uh, an imagery used here. Some take this to mean that Satan will cause a flood in an attempt to destroy the Israelites. And that's a possibility. God has saved Israel twice from water situations in the past, right? At the Red Sea and also in the Jordan River. So it wouldn't be any big deal for God to rescue the Israelites from water in a miraculous way again. But Daniel also uses similar imagery in describing Satan's war against Israel in Daniel chapter 11. There he says, he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, which is referring to Israel. Here, this is referring to army invasions. So it could be that Satan will inspire the Antichrist to dispatch a huge army that sweeps in like a flood, chasing these after these Israelites, and just as they're closing in on them, the army is swallowed up either by an earthquake or in some supernatural way. God swallowed up people before by having the earth swallow them up. You can read about that in number 16 if you want to. So he's done both before. Even though Satan will know where these Jews are, he won't be able to get at them because God is protecting them. And this chapter ends by telling us that frustrated and enraged at not being able to destroy this Jewish remnant, Satan then turns his fury against every follower of Jesus he can find. Now, what madness will Satan use to make war on believers during the second half of the tribulation? Well, we're going to see some of these tactics next time in chapter 13. But what principles can we take from this chapter? that can help us as this battle only is going to intensify the closer we get to the end. Well, first we need to remember that God never forgets his people. Israel right now may be blind and disobedient as a nation, but God has never forgotten them, and he never will. We see during the last three and a half years that God's elect are going to be protected. That doesn't mean that all of them will escape problems. It doesn't mean that they'll all escape death. But a remnant will overcome Satan. And the same God who stands by his promises to Israel stands by his promises to each one of us. He won't forget his people Israel. And he will not forget you either. In Hebrews 13.5 he says, I will never No, never, ever leave or desert you. I will never forsake you. Ladies, God already knows what tomorrow holds for each one of us. And no matter what circumstances each of us will face, he already has plans and provisions in place to care for us when that time comes. The second thing we need to remember is that Satan's defeat is certain. Right now, Satan is kind of like a convict on the run who knows he's going to get caught. 
but he's trying to wreak as much havoc as he can until the time he's finally thrown behind bars. Satan was defeated at the cross, and his capture is inevitable. But until that time, he's trying to wreak havoc and destroy us. But remember this. Satan has been defeated. And he has no more power over your life than what you choose to allow him to have. Now listen to this illustration I want to give you uh, from Neil Anderson. This, I think, is a perfect illustration of this. He said, when I was a boy on the farm, my dad, my brother, and I would often visit our neighbor's farm to share produce. The neighbor had a yappy little dog that scared the socks off of me. When it came barking around the corner, my dad and my brother stood their ground. But I ran. Guess who the dog chased? I escaped to the top of our pickup truck while that little dog yapped at me from the ground. Everyone except me could see that this little dog had no power over me except when I gave in. Furthermore, it had no inherent power to throw me up on the pickup truck. It was my belief that put me up there. Because I chose to believe a lie, I essentially allowed that little dog to use my mind and my emotions and my will and my muscles, all of which were motivated by fear. Well, finally, I gathered up my courage and I jumped off the pickup truck and I kicked a small rock at that mutt. And lo and behold... He ran away. Now, ladies, that is Satan. He has no more power over you than that little mutt does. And every time you stand your ground and say no to him, you lessen the grip that you think he has on your life. Because he doesn't have a grip. He's been defeated. James says it this way in James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will what, ladies? Flee. From you. So don't fall for Satan's yapping and allow his scare tactics to call, cause you to live in fear. That slithering serpent can make all the crafty moves he, that he wants to, but in the end, God wins. Now, we've covered a lot of ground today. <laughs> we've seen a whole panoramic from the very, very beginning of this war to what will happen at the end of this war. And it's a lot, I know. But after looking at all this, I hope that if we can just remember three things, no matter what you're facing in your life, what tomorrow will bring, if we can keep in mind three things, whether it be troubles or joy, uh, celebrations, heartache, remember these three things. Christ has redeemed me. Christ is with me. And Christ will take me home. That covers it, doesn't it? Say it with me. Christ has redeemed me. Christ is with me. And Christ will take me home. Say it one more time. Christ has redeemed me. Christ is with me. And Christ will take me home. Let's pray. Now there are only two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Only those who are part of God's kingdom have the assurance of God's promises and deliverance from the kingdom of darkness and Satan. 
And you may be here this morning and you may be thinking, well, how do I become a part of the kingdom of God? Well, the only people who are a part of the kingdom of God are forgiven people. People who have had their sins completely forgiven and washed away by the blood of death of Jesus. So to be forgiven, all you have to do is first admit that you need to be forgiven by God. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fall short of God's plan. So we have to first admit our sin and then secondly, trust in Jesus to be our Savior. That means to believe that when he died on the cross, he died in our place. He took the punishment from God that you and I deserve to take for our sin. And when we trust in what Jesus did for us, not in our good works, not in our baptism, not in our church membership, but when we trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, then we receive forgiveness of our sins. And God is ready to offer you his forgiveness this morning. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. So today, if you're listening and you're ready to do this, all you have to do is just talk to God in your heart right where you're sitting, knowing that he's listening to you right now in heaven. And you can say something like this. God, thank you for loving me. I know I failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sin in my life. But I believe what the Bible says, that you love me so much that you sent your only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sin, to take the punishment from you that I deserved. And right now I choose to trust what Jesus did to save me from my sin. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to spend the rest of my life following you. And Lord, I am so grateful that regardless of where this day and the days to come may take each one of us, you have redeemed us, you are with us, and you will take us home. Help us to live with our minds set on the things above so that your light would shine in our lives and your name would be glorified and draw other people to you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus the mighty victor and returning king that we pray. Amen. Happy Valentine's Day, ladies. See you next week. Thank you for your...